From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Baer. Today, the state legislature takes up a ban on mask mandates. If the measure succeeds, it's sure to meet the governor's veto pen. It's a very loud group of people who are still angry about needing to wear masks in certain spaces. Also, how COVID has changed the way we think about and use social spaces. There's a lot of energy right now in what people talk about as curb management. Rethinking the role of the curb, the place where the sidewalk meets the street, and shifting from parking lane to flex zone, as people sometimes put it. And yes, it was a bad year for mosquitoes in Michigan, but does that translate into more mosquito-borne disease? We try to sample the mosquitoes because they're the first indicator of viral activity in an area. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Baer. Later on the show, we're going to talk about how the spaces where we gather have changed during the pandemic. This has been an eye-opening insight into how that nine by 18 foot parking space can actually sustain a whole bunch of higher and better uses. That's coming up in just a bit. But first, did you see this video that went viral last week of parents pushing for their unmasked teens to be allowed into their Manchester high school where masks are mandated? Anybody that's going to go in, they got to have a mask on. There is no policy. I'm not arguing. Okay, so they can go in, guys. They can go in. They can go in. Go on in, guys. Go in. Well, they can't enforce it. And then just a couple days later, more than 70 teenagers walked out of their high school building in Gaylord in protest of that school's mask mandates. Now Michigan's state Senate is pushing through a ban on mask mandates, one that has an uncertain future even if the legislature approves it. Joining us now is State Senator Eric Geis, representing Taylor. She is a Democrat but has been involved in debates on the floor about this. Senator Geis, welcome back to Stateside. Thank you, April. It's great to be here. So we know that Governor Gretchen Whitmer would be sure to veto any kind of ban on mask mandates. She has basically said that it's important for local jurisdictions to make their own local decisions about this. Uh, What can you tell us that might inform this debate that's going on in the legislature right now with legislative Republicans trying to go for it anyway? You know, that is a good question. I I think that right now it's coming from um, believing a lot of misinformation and a lot of disinformation. Um, There is also the general public frustration with us still being in the pandemic. And I, I understand and appreciate that. However, we do still need to be taking certain mitigation strategies while we're still in the middle of a pandemic where we have variants. Um, so having masks in school is one part of those mitigation steps. And it's unfortunate that that is something that um, my Republican colleagues are rallying around um, rather than trying to stem. It's it's a very loud um, but small group of people who are still angry about needing to, to wear masks in certain spaces. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in your district? So my district is in Wayne County, and I have a 
portion, a good portion of Downriver and Western Wayne County. And August 27th, Wayne County Health Department issued um, a mask mandate for daycares all the way up through 12th grade. And, um, you know, when I take my, my eldest uh, is a sophomore um, in high school. And when I drop him off in the morning, um, the students are wearing their masks. Um, and even when I've taken him to driver's ed, the students are, are wearing their masks. Uh, the students are behaving with um, more responsibility than some of the adults uh, in our state right now. You say you think that state senators themselves do believe the disinformation around public health and COVID, that it's not just politics? I think it's a combination of both. Um, you know, they're speaking to their base. So when you look at the the senators who uh, are the, the primary sponsors of Senate Bill 600 through 603, which is what we were um, uh, hearing yesterday uh, in committee, in education committee, the um, they're all folks who um, have been very vocal throughout the pandemic about being against the governor's um, mandates, the governor's um, and the Department of Health's um, statements about protecting public health. And I think one of the things that is most interesting of this situation is that a year ago, when we were looking at what the uh, return to in-person instruction would look like, we left it up to the school districts and local health departments and allowing the people who are from that community, who know their community to be able to make the best decisions for their community. And now a year later, they're trying to prevent them from doing um, some of the most basic mitigation processes um, for protecting the community against COVID. There are Republican representatives in Lansing who represent districts with a lot of angry parents in them who say that they don't want their kids having to wear masks in school. Is there something to the argument that they're representing their constituency, even if it's not following public health guidelines and the best medical recommendations we have? That is always um, part of the process of, of serving a community that is diverse. And when I say that, I mean diverse in ideas, I, I diverse in opinions. Um, however, we are at a, a point where this is a wide public health issue. And when we're talking about making sure that we're protecting the most vulnerable of people, um, we have to take those concerns into, into consideration, but we also need to be doing um, what is best for the most vulnerable in those spaces. Um, and it is, it is a, a delicate dance um, when you have divergent opinions and you're trying to represent your entire community, but this is about public health. This isn't just about ideological differences or political differences. Full stop, it should be about protecting public health for our communities. Given that there is dissent at the local level and a really a high degree of pressure on our public health departments and our school boards and our superintendents in some cases, do you think it's fair to leave the mask mandates at the local level? Would it, would it be better if there were that statewide mask mandate in place? You know, I think 
it would really depend on how um, how the the virus, the the Delta variant in particular, is affecting our our hospitals, is affecting the community. How quickly um, and how far spread, um, how how widespread, I should say, it's it, the the variant is spreading. Um, I think right now, um, strongly urging the local health departments and the school districts um, is where we need to be. I, I hope that we don't get to a point where the Delta variant um, has become so widespread that we end up needing to issue a statewide mask mandate. Um, I think that in our schools, though, especially uh, given that our elementary kids cannot get vaccinated at all yet, um, um, that it's necessary to have the departments of health, the locally departments of health and the, the school boards make those decisions to have masks in school. We have seen some pushback from students on mask mandates at high schools in places like Manchester and Gaylord that I mentioned a few moments ago. You know, it strikes me that teenagers have a bit more personal agency than elementary school kids. It's also a fact that teenagers are not known for making the smartest, safest choices for themselves at all time. Um, what do you think the best way is for officials, but also maybe teachers and parents to communicate with these kids about the importance of masking if that messaging isn't coming at them from home? Well, I think all of us, and, and I'm saying this too as a, as a former educator, all of us adults in their lives, are one of our jobs is to help them get to adulthood and be responsible. And all of us know that adulting is um, sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do, but that you need to do. This is one of those cases where you don't want to do it. It's a pain, but it's something that you have to do for the benefit and the good of not just yourself, but everyone. Yeah. I just wonder what you make of kids walking out. Is this something where where you think the wisest course forward would be an official public response, or is this something best handled more informally by maybe teachers and, and principals who can who can handle this on their own? I would say regarding the kids walking out, um, that should be handled at the, the policy decision-making level of the school or the school district. Um, you know, I, I don't think anything drastic should happen to them. Um, and I think it is a very important teachable moment. Um, you know, yes, as young adults, they have a certain amount of, of autonomy. But, you know, to go back to this point of sometimes you, we as adults have to do things that we don't want to do, but it's the correct thing to do. Yeah. It seems like it might be a lot to ask kids to go against the wishes of their parents, even if masks are mandated in school. It seems an unenviable situation for everyone involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is not an ideal situation, but I guess the question is, you know, where is this coming from that something as simple as wearing a mask um, has become such a point of contention 
especially when the reason for wearing a mask um, is one of public health. Erica Geis is a state senator representing Taylor. Erica, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure, April. Next up, it's not just you. This has been a banner year for mosquitoes. We're about to speak with two scientists who test mosquitoes for the diseases that threaten humans. We try to sample the mosquitoes because they're the first indicator of viral activity in an area. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Baer. You're probably quite familiar with COVID testing, but what about testing mosquitoes for infectious diseases? This is a thing, and folks over at the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services are pioneering the practice for Michigan. While other states, such as Florida, have been doing this kind of testing for decades, Michigan has adopted the practice in effort to control the outbreak of arborvirus or other diseases transmitted from mosquitoes and other kinds of arthropods. Today, we're joined by Kristen Finch, a microbiologist of viral serology, and Emily Din, a medical entomologist, and they both work for MDHHS. Kristen, Emily, welcome to Stateside. Thank you so much for having me. So I just tossed a whole pile of titles at people, but if I'm getting this right, Kristen, you study diseases, and Emily, you study the insects that carry them? Yeah, you could say that. Yeah. Emily, on any given summer week, approximately how many mosquitoes are you testing? Ooh, so that is very seasonal. June, July, August tend to be our peak. I would say there are probably several thousand mosquitoes that we capture, but reasonably speaking, for the time that it takes to sort these jumble of mosquito samples, realistically, we have to limit our samples we pull out and send to laboratory And so honestly, I have lost track and probably Kristen would be the better representation of that. But June, July, August are our peak months. Kristen, do you have a beat on this? Yeah, sure. So our season started out pretty slow earlier this spring when there weren't too many mosquitoes flying outside. We were doing maybe maybe in the double digits every week. And then I believe it was after the 4th of July, we had our first big surge. I think we all remember in Michigan how it became impossible to walk outside without getting swarmed. And our numbers reflected that. So we went from testing 50 or 60 in a week to several hundred. And I would say that the volumes have been pretty consistent with a couple hundred per week. They seem to be slowing down, but I'd need to experience the rest of my week to really answer that. Sure. You know, I was going to ask you about that, Kristen. It feels like it's been an epic year for rain. And I wondered what sort of year it's been for the bugs that hatch in standing water and subsequently bite us and share diseases. I mean, it's not just our imagination, right? The the mosquitoes are everywhere. Um, It seems so. We had a very wet, I believe it was the end of June. And that sort of preceded our first big surge in mosquito numbers. Emily, how does the testing of mosquitoes work? What parts of the insect are you looking at? So on my end, I specialize in the field aspect. So I'm going out to the field to set traps for mosquitoes. I set them out in the evening, come back the next morning. And then in the laboratory, I sort them out by species and what exactly is testable. Because obviously there are many different kinds of mosquito species, but only select few that transmit diseases that we are interested in keeping an eye on in terms of public health and prevalence and so on. And so how that works is when I sort out the mosquitoes that are the ones we'd like to test, 
I then send the mosquitoes, whole mosquito or whatever is left over from things that break off into little test tubes to send to lab for testing. And then the lab, they take over and basically the mosquito gets ground into a mush before it goes through testing. <laughs> so you're, they're actually testing mosquito paste. Yes, that's essentially it. Happy thought for those of us who who've spend our summer itching and scratching and digging. I hope there are no mosquito advocates out there listening right now who might have been upset by what I just said, but that's just my feeling on this. How did the, the scientific practice of testing mosquito pools for different viruses begin? Meaning to say testing the mosquitoes rather than testing humans. Okay, so essentially mosquito testing, I don't know exactly when it started, but it's been a centuries-long practice depending on the um, mosquito-borne disease you're interested in. And so for Michigan in particular, we're interested in mosquitoes because the viruses that we're looking for when we're looking at mosquito-borne diseases in Michigan, such as West Nile and Eastern Equine Encephalitis, they circulate within the mosquito-bird cycle in nature for some time before the virus has circulated enough within the birds and the mosquitoes to then what we call spillover into different mosquito species and animal species and humans. And so with that, we try to sample the mosquitoes because they're the first indicator of viral activity in an area. Hmm. So what is the process of this going from the idea stage to being an actual scientific experiment or a tangible test? Kristen, can you tell us about that? Sure. So the idea for this at the Bureau of Laboratories here at the state has been thrown around for years. It was actually part of my interview when I interviewed for the position that I currently hold in 2018. Then it was just sort of a slow roll. We talked to Emily and the rest of the team at Epidemiology a lot on what sort of questions they want answered, what sort of testing was being currently done, how it could be better. And then I sort of got to work on figuring out what sort of supplies we wanted to use, what type of testing we wanted to use, what the best methods were. It involved a lot of trial and error over several years. And of course, that was slowed down by COVID, as was pretty much everything else over here. But eventually, we found the best way for us to do everything. We found the things that worked the best, and we were able to set up the testing and Epidemiology was a big part of that with coordinating all of our submitters and getting their mosquitoes to us. Emily, like we said, this has been a, a pretty big year for mosquitoes as far as we can tell. Do you have anything that you would want folks to know about keeping themselves safe from vector-borne diseases right now? Oh, yes. So right around now is the late season in Michigan for arboviral diseases. And so typically what we have seen is that's when human cases and animal cases, the ones that we humans can perceive very, very well, are generally on the decline. But sometimes we have had cases show up in as late as October in places that we never really expected. And so going back to the sort of questions we had in setting up this mosquito testing process was to try to understand, for example, the distribution of Eastern equine encephalitis virus. We know that there's, especially in the southwestern corner Michigan, a pretty endemic area for Eastern equine encephalitis virus. We've had outbreaks date back from 1940s in that area, but 
I think in 2019 and 2020, we had some later cases that occurred in places like the Upper Peninsula and a little bit up north as well. And so what I urge people to do during this time of year is that although it seems like things are cooling off, it's still warm enough for the mosquitoes to fly in the peak daytime hours. And, you know, one bite from a mosquito can give you a disease that, quite frankly, many of them don't have cures for. And so whenever I caution people, it's very much, you know, when you're out at a football game in the evening or hiking in the fall when it's nice and crisp, but still kind of warm, I definitely still advise the same mosquito bite prevention methods that you use in the spring and summer when obviously there are a bunch of mosquitoes out. So things like wearing long sleeves and shirts, um, repellents, being aware what time of the day it is, and very much trying to prevent bites however you can. And definitely the repellent methods you use can also depend on what kind of situation you're in. If you're sitting in your back patio, you may be able to use something like a thermosel, which is a device that has a little cartridge in it that's loaded into a burner that then releases basically a noxious fume that the mosquito doesn't like, but is perfectly fine for us. Mm-hmm. It's essentially a adaptation of a mosquito coil. If you are active and sweating, those sort of methods where you're not really hanging around in one spot aren't going to be as effective. So definitely look into a repellent. And what I recommend for people trying to find a repellent that suits them is EPA has a mosquito repellent database that I refer them to. And I simply Google EPA find a repellent. And that also has a database for products that are also effective against ticks. Yeah. If you're just joining us, I'm talking all things Michigan mosquitoes with Kristen Finch, a microbiologist, and Emily Din, a medical entomologist. They both work for Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services. I wanted to ask, what is it about mosquito research that gets you up in the morning? Oh, that's a very, very good question. So for me, being an entomologist, I always have found the small things fascinating So mosquitoes, for example, I remember reading somewhere that something like between 5 to 50% of the world's population that has ever lived on this earth has died from a mosquito-borne illness or even a vector-borne illness. Things like plague was flea-transmitted. Things like malaria are mosquito-transmitted and still impact people to this day. Yellow fever was a big deal in the United States several years ago. And just recently in memory, malaria was a big issue in the United States too, until about the 1950s when public health efforts eliminated malaria as that. And so definitely I think that mosquito-borne illnesses and other vector-borne illnesses have a huge impact on human history. And to me, that's always been what's so fascinating and along with the biology of the mosquito itself. Kristen, what about you? Uh, Well, my first love was birds. So I studied avian biology for about 10 years. And a lot of these arboviruses can affect birds. So I've always had sort of an interest in these viruses. And then once I transitioned my career into public health, that sort of kept um, these arboviruses on my radar. And some of my team members are actually, they do the human testing for these viruses So bringing all that together, I feel really passionate about contributing to public health in this way. So it feels like a small way 
for me to have an, a big impact, I guess. I guess the hope is that by completing this testing and doing these tests in a, a quick and efficient and effective manner, I can help people. That's really it. It, it all comes down to helping people. That's what we're here for. Yeah, precisely. And thank you, Kristen, for all the mosquito testing the lab and you have taken on. It's been amazing. Emily, what would you say has been the biggest obstacle in the work? What's hard about it? I would definitely say the number one obstacle is personnel. Compared to Florida, for example, Michigan up here, there isn't much expertise and infrastructure for things like taxpayer-funded mosquito control. You know, the largest mosquito-borne triple E outbreak that the country has ever seen was in 2019, and there were 38 people that died that year. What is it that makes this an important public health concern? You know, some people might look at this and say, you know, my gosh, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic at the same time. It's a seemingly no, a low number of people who were affected by this. Kristen, do you have any perspective for us on mosquito-borne disease in the context of everything else that we're dealing with right now? Sure. Yeah, the the numbers we see for these viruses might be small, but every single person matters. And especially with the surveillance that we're doing, our hope is that we mitigate human impact and see fewer people affected by these viruses. So it's true that we don't see gigantic numbers, but when we do, it's, it's devastating for everybody affected. So we're really trying to just mitigate as much as we can. Sure. If you two could wave a magic wand and test any place in the state that you wanted to, I know that there's a fair amount of testing around Lansing, but there are entire parts of the state that aren't really testing much right now. Where would you like to see mosquito testing be done in Michigan? Hmm. Let's see. I would like mosquito testing to be done in the UP. I think that is a very fascinating place where, quite frankly, we just don't have a lot of information. And now that we have to consider things like climate change and other factors weighing into mosquito-borne diseases, we can't continue with the idea that the UP is relatively free of mosquito-borne disease because it's relatively cold up there. And that's not exactly true anymore. And we are getting some cases up there every now and then. And so in the future, it's safe to assume that there are likely going to be more cases identified. And quite frankly, that's kind of a black hole in our knowledge of mosquito-borne diseases in Michigan. This kind of testing, I mean, it's something that a lot of people could understand and relate to. And yet running around in the fields and trapping mosquitoes is not something that a lot of people have experience doing. Is there anything particularly crazy that's ever happened in the field, Emily? Oh, let's see. When I lived in Florida, I was a graduate student. That's where I received a lot of my training as an entomologist. You definitely come across things like snakes, bears, other wild animals that really you don't want to mess with as much as you can. Up here in Michigan, I have not had a lot of experiences quite to that degree, but there's also things like Somebody sees a mosquito trap, thinks it's litter, and takes it away. And sometimes those <laughs> mosquito traps are pretty expensive. So it's kind of a hit, too, in terms of whatever limited budget I do have for traps. Maybe we just need a core to create little tiny signs that say mosquito trap, please yes, do not yeah, remove. That has helped a lot, too. But occasionally somebody still takes it. 
Oh, the joys of research. Science is so glamorous, isn't it? Yeah. So communication of trying to get people who aren't super trained in vector-borne diseases like Chris and I are, how to take these on. Many of the mosquito surveillance we do manage to do here in Michigan are primarily out of environmental health departments. Many of them are used to things like septic tank investigations or restaurant inspections, so on. Mosquitoes are kind of another field house for them. And so there's definitely learning on the job for whatever personnel we do have. Recently, I think in June, July, there was a press release that we located the invasive Asian tiger mosquito in Wayne County. And after that, I received many, many inquiries with a mistaken belief that the very large golly nipper mosquito, Sorophora ciliata, is the Asian tiger mosquito. In actuality, the Asian tiger mosquito is about the same size of any other typical mosquito and requires a little bit of skill to identify. The golly nipper mosquito is very unique and very big. So you can just tell what it is just by looking at its size. And so it was a lot of fun educating people who asked me about this. What's this mosquito? And so that's what I find and think is so interesting that people are interested in biology and science through those little ways. Emily, you just solved my big summer mystery. We have been seeing <laughs> yes, those are giant, the mosquitoes. giant mosquitoes. Fun yeah. Fun fact, the larvae are carnivorous on other mosquito larvae, but they still drink blood as adults. Oh, wow. Well, they're big and they're scary and I'm reaching for the bug spray. <laughs> yes. But in a way, it's good that they're kind of big and scary because you can see them coming and they don't transmit any diseases. Emily Din is a medical entomologist. It's not that big of a deal. They just take about a gallon. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Well, not literally, but it's a lot. They're big. Emily Din is a medical entomologist, and Kristen Finch is a microbiologist in viral serology, and they both work for Michigan's Department of Health and Human Services. Ladies, thank you so much for the mosquito lesson, and good luck getting on top of the vectors this fall. Thank you for having me. I was having a lot of fun. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We so appreciate having you tune in for Stateside every day. Let us know what's going on in your corner of the state. We're on Twitter at Stateside Radio. Or send us an email. Our address is stateside at michiganradio.org. If you can stand the bugs, this is a fabulous season to be outside with friends. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll talk about creative ways cities are making room for us to gather in any season. These shared outdoor spaces can be a place for people to acclimate to being part of a more broadly shared public realm. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Hasn't it been amazing this summer being able to get out and grab a sidewalk table at your favorite neighborhood spot? Just being in person with other people and watching others walk by. It's been an incredible way to recharge. Does this have to be something that we only do during a global health crisis? Our city's outdoor spaces, social districts, to call them by the name that urban planners use, are great. But are there other ways in which we might be able to rethink spaces to gather? Jonathan Massey is an architect, historian, professor, critic, and dean at the University of Michigan Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning. He's been an advocate for rethinking our built environment in a variety of ways. Jonathan Massey, welcome to Stateside. 
Thank you, April. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be here. I've learned a lot from this show over my four years here at the University of Michigan, and it's a privilege to get to join the conversation. The importance of outdoor gathering spaces has become so screamingly obvious during the <laughs> pandemic. Do you feel like this is the moment designers have been waiting for their whole careers? Well put. It's definitely um, a once-in-a-generation opportunity, I think. I think a lot of us see it that way. And a, an opportunity to catalyze, accelerate, and consolidate some lines of thinking and practice that have been emerging over the past, I don't know, 15, 20 years, but especially over the past decade. And I think there's a sense now that the jolt, the 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 jolt provided by the pandemic that forced us out of our traditional ways of operating, sometimes, you know, with with great pain and pressure, um, that in this domain in particular of creating these active outdoor social districts on our sidewalks, streets, and public spaces, a sense that that is an opportunity to, you know, to really flip some of our practices into a sustainably better configuration. Yeah. In legal terms, a social district is a place that you can serve alcohol out of doors in ways that aren't the norm. And the state passed a law in 2020 allowing Michigan cities to apply for permits to do this. I wonder, though, when you think about a social district, I, I don't want to downplay the role of alcohol in our mutual understanding <laughs> and, and community benefit, but uh, can a social district mean more than that? Yeah, for sure. I, I think there have been something like 40-plus social districts approved in, the, in Michigan cities and towns since that ordinance was passed. And I've had a chance to enjoy a small number of those, probably many of your listeners likewise. But I, obviously, social district, I, I'd like to keep the focus, as you're suggesting, on the, on, on the broader capacities of these shared public spaces that folks have been creating. I think serving alcohol obviously is a, is a leading activity in a time of economic pressure on the food and drink and hospitality sectors because it's a high revenue per square foot activity, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, that might be one way to think about the role of, of drinking in the legislation is that alcohol sales have been a lifeline for businesses that are struggling to stay afloat during this tough era, but that really, I agree with you that we ought to think of that as the thin end of the wedge for a whole broader range of activities. And I think we've seen and experienced some of those already, but that even more is possible. Yeah. I mean, there, there was a time when a few waterfront spots in Detroit and Western Michigan, maybe Traverse City, were the prime examples of what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. Now, every place from Port Huron to Allegan County to Manistee has a social district. I mean, it just feels like the, the conversation has broadened into small town Main Street, too. Yes, I, I think it has. And I think a lot of people, you know, many people in Michigan and elsewhere are are really dependent on the on the private automobile to get around and to access the denser downtown commercial districts where most of these social districts have sprung up. And so I suspect that there's a whole group of longtime transit and bike users for whom this is a long-awaited, eagerly welcomed 
shift toward you know that that supports their modes of accessing restaurants and bars and also bookstores and food co-ops and stuff like that but i think for a lot of people who are used to driving and parking downtown this has been eye-opening also in a different way. They may be a little frustrated that their through routes are closed on weekends and evenings or that some of their prime parking spaces are now not available and they're, they're parking a little farther away or in a structure. But I think my, my sense is that for a lot of them too, this has been an eye-opening insight into how that 9 by 18 foot parking space can actually sustain a whole bunch of higher and better uses, both experientially and financially. So I was in Genesee County on a Saturday night in August in Fenton, and there were certainly people sitting and eating outside. But also, uh, Fenton took the extra step of closing down uh, some of the main streets, which made it possible for kids on bikes to be rolling all over the place. And I mean, they were Mm. out in numbers uh, there were there were kids on scooters, dads on skateboards. Um, are there what are some other ways in which our streets can be used differently? Well, I think some of the some of the roots of the of the social district approach and and of the dining sheds that um, that have appeared in some of these to provide weather some protection from the weather for open air dining. Um, they they go back to events. Uh, they they trace back to events like Parking Day, which some of your listeners may have been heard of or or, or experienced. Um, this is something that started in San Francisco in 2005, creating parklets, temporary um, public space amenities in parking spaces, and uh, you know Parking Day is is has now become a national phenomenon that, where. Anybody who wants to participate can organize to uh, pay the meter <laughs> on a parking space for the course of a day and set up their own kind of pop-up park, whatever that might mean. It might be a stretch of of um, ast- uh, of uh, sod and plants for people to lounge on. It might be a little free library. It could be a cafe or a place for a workshop, an art art making workshop or something, and you know. Some cities, I mean, San Francisco is one example, have have had authorizing legislation or, or programs to allow longer-term parklet use um, for some years. And so, you know, that's one of the sources that is bringing that broader range of activities to um, parking spaces. But I think there's some other, other dimensions to that that I'd love to, to think about with you. Will social districts work if you just give restaurants leeway to to do their business outside, if you don't think about other things to give people reasons to come out? That's a great insight. I mean, I think one of the ways to think about this redeployment of the parking lane alongside the curb in districts with, with restaurants and, and other retail businesses is to make better use of a resource that's traditionally been undervalued and underpriced. So street parking is very cheap. Um, it is underpriced and undervalued. But rest- the restaurant space or bar space is quite expensive. So one of the ways to think about this is just in purely economic terms that businesses and customers and the cities that depend on tax revenue 
all are benefiting more from that nine by 18 foot space. Um, but another way to think about it is in, in terms of accommodating. So you talked about other uses. There's a lot of energy right now in what people talk about as curb management, rethinking the role of the curb, the place where the sidewalk meets the street, and shifting from parking lane to flex zone, as people sometimes put it. So that might include uh, using that curb and parking area, sometimes for car parking, as we often do now, but also for bus access, particularly at times of peak commuting, for rideshare pickups and drop-offs, for business loading, trash collection, dining, temporary in place for food trucks or for mobile health clinics, COVID test. You know, I saw this with some COVID testing sites, or you might think about the blood mobile. Ah. Um, so those are arranged. Some of them are familiar uses that happen intermittently and maybe could happen more often. And some of them are new to us, like sitting down for, for a meal in what used to be our parking spot. Jonathan Massey is my guest today. He is dean at the University of Michigan's Taubman College for Architecture and Urban Planning. Jonathan, there's a perception that outdoor social space is something for well-heeled communities. I mean, in Ann Arbor, you know, you see people sitting drinking $15 glasses of wine, and <laughs> it's, it's you know, you, you may wonder, is this really something that's going to work for everybody? But is it true in practice that social space is only in communities that can afford it? Um, I don't have deep uh, on-the-ground knowledge about some of the other ways that people might be using this specific opportunity of the social districts. But certainly, I think public space, accessible, affordable public space, is also better provisioned currently for wealthy communities than for, than for poorer ones. And so given that park, access to park space and to public amenities like a playground or a library or some of the other kind of institutions that provide key functions in our lives, there's a lot of opportunity to expand access to that through these even very small interventions. And one of the things that I think we want to see moving forward is some testing and prototyping of different approaches. So the parklets practice or, or movement that we see activated in these social districts, mostly around eating and drinking, is part of a larger practice of urban prototyping, which is a a practice or a movement of using participatory design, often linked to art and technology, to test pathways toward improving our streets and cities. And so the, you know, this practice of urban prototyping or tactical urbanism, it's sometimes called using small-scale temporary interventions to find out what a community needs and what it's going to respond to, what's going to work, and what unforeseen challenges might present themselves. I think a round of prototyping of different uses of these street spaces would would be a really amazing follow-up to the you know to the summer of outdoor dining that we've just enjoyed. We do have some communities in Michigan where it's not that easy to get people together to hang out, especially where people of color are not encouraged to congregate and sit and talk. Is there anything that planning can do to help with equity issues? 
Yeah, I think part of what you're describing is a question of formal policy, land use regulations, zoning regulations, city ordinances that might have been written um, to discourage, uh, to, to limit access to public space. Loitering laws are a famous example of this um, that, that serve as a pretext for racist forms of social control. Um, so I think one dimension of this is those formal mechanisms, scrutinizing ordinances, policies, um, and uh, practices that lend themselves to selective or biased enforcement. The other part is more informal and is ab about culture and body language and the cues that people give one another about whether they are welcome or not in a space. And I do hope that some of the um, new ways of using streets in the you know in the past year or so are acclimating people to being out in a more heterogeneous multicultural public than they than they're used to. I certainly have noticed, even in a context like Ann Arbor, which you're right, is very affluent and um, not as diverse as as some other parts of the state. Come bringing people out of indoor venues into a shared block of Main Street or Liberty Street, you know, even at a, at a much smaller level, starts to mix different clienteles and different cultures. And I'd like to think that these, these shared outdoor spaces can be a place for people to, to acclimate to being part of a more broadly shared public realm. If we combine it with proactive attention to those formal mechanisms of exclusion and regulation that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. There's a seasonal aspect to this. Uh, the city of Royal Oak is preparing to extend its social district into the fall. How far into winter do you think Michigan's towns can take this? Well, uh, you, one of my learnings last winter was that we can go pretty far outside what we thought was our comfort zone if we have the the right incentives and the right supports. So, you know, I think about some, some cities and towns have a winter carnival. Um, I think Quebec is, a, is one of the most famous examples of this. But um, I, I think, you know, people used patio heaters and um, fire pits and, you know, other heating mechanisms to extend the season. And we discovered that we can go pretty far, maybe not all the way through the winter, um, but that's a that's an area where I think there's some flexibility. I myself purchased some battery heated socks and and a vest <laughs> that that really helped me when the patio heater wasn't strong enough to keep me warm in December through my meal or through my hangout. Um, products made for hunters and skiers turned out to have an urban application um, in in helping me extend the season. The other thing that I think about is the potential for for deeper transformation in our in our cities. Like is in Ann Arbor, we have the Nickerson Arcade, but I would love to see over time if we might see temporary seasonal enclosures of larger scale outdoor public spaces and potentially rediscover the arcade as an urban typology that can create year-round public, uh, public gathering spaces. 
It's definitely easier to get people excited about that holiday shopping trip when there's a roof overhead, <laughs> but maybe not yes. a full roof. Yeah. Do you have some other favorite social spaces in Michigan where where you think things, places you've seen this done pretty well? Uh, thinking about Detroit, I, f- I think folks who have used the Dequindra Cut uh, bike path have observed pop-up businesses gathering people um, there. Uh, there's a new little plaza in Core City that's got some that that is a, a kind of draw for some of the new businesses in its um, you know within a block or two. I also think, let's see, I'm trying to think about water spaces in Michigan. You know, lake life is one of the hallmarks of a Michigan summer. You know, I. I I don't know, but I think it'd be really interesting to think about some edge conditions, edge cases for this, you know, on, on, on a frozen lake centering on ice skating, for instance. Jonathan Massey is Dean of Taubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning at the U of M. Jonathan, thank you so much for talking with us about this. Oh, it's a pleasure, April. It's an exciting topic, and I can't wait to see where our cities and state take this. And that's Stateside for today. I'm April Bear. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.